So good to see you tonight. Thank you so much for coming back out to community for our evening service. I'm going to invite your attention to God's Word as we begin this evening. We'll turn to the passage that was read a moment ago, 2 Timothy chapter 1. I just want to read one part of a verse, then we'll be moving over to another place and look at that for a while. 2 Timothy chapter number 1. If you look at verse number 12 and look for the first full sentence, which begins with but, so he says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now, if you turn to the book of Romans, chapter 7, please, read another verse there. And we'll be back to 2 Timothy in a bit, but let's go to the book of Romans, chapter 7. And I want to read for you verse number 18. And the Apostle Paul says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Join me, would you? Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of corporate worship we know, Father, we're never denied the opportunity of worship. If we know you, we come directly into your presence. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we celebrate his efficacious work, making it possible for us to come into your presence and his name to come boldly before the throne of grace, to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And yet there are special things that come our way by way of your work and your blessing in corporate worship. So thank you for each person who's found it important and been able to gather tonight. And I pray, Father, you would continue to bless our service. Thank you for those things that we've enjoyed already, for the wonderful music, for the opportunity to give praise to you, and not only to read in the Bible of gospel truth, but to sing it. We thank you for the ability to celebrate your truth in many ways and for the Lord's Day, which in your great wisdom you have set aside for this purpose. And so I pray now, Lord, that as we look into your word, this is also something you have prescribed for our public worship, that we are to preach the word, to be instant in season, out of season, to reprove, exhort, rebuke with all long-suffering and doctrine, because we know the time will come when men will not endure sound doctrine, and dear God, we have arrived at that time. And we pray that you will bless us and help us to hold fast, especially those wonderful, glorious truths of the gospel, which I pray that you will give me the ability to celebrate and proclaim here this evening. In Jesus' holy and wonderful name I pray, amen. Have you ever stopped to think very much, it's a bit of maybe a depressing thought, but have you ever stopped to think very much about how much uncertainty is in this world? Or we could put it differently, we could approach it oppositely and say, have you ever thought about how little is certain in this world? For example, a press conference is called. A politician arrives at the press conference. Seated before him are the members of the press. The politician recognizes a member of the press. They ask a perfectly intelligent question that you can understand completely and know exactly what it is they're asking, even if it maybe is a little provocative. Still, it's clear, it's straightforward, you know what they're asking. 
And what follows as the politician responds is a word salad. And after you listen for a while, even though it seems like that answer could have filled a page, you have no clue what they've really said. They've talked all around in circles and never bothered to answer the question or used a bunch of words that no one understands. Instead of getting to the point, they beat around the bush, or they would put it, circumlocute the polar veracity. This happens all the time, and this is just one example of it, but we woke up Saturday morning to a blatant example of it, and it was mentioned in our service this morning. Well, one of our hearts is not burdened and troubled when we read about what took place in Israel over the weekend and what is still taking place. If you've been to the land of Israel, you can sort of envision some of these things, but I want you for a moment just to sort of put yourself in the position of someone living in one of those little places along the Gaza Strip. And unbeknownst to you, infiltration has occurred. Fighters from Hamas have infiltrated your city. And at an ungodly hour early in the morning, all of a sudden, these rockets let loose all over the place, which they say have now exceeded in total in the count 3,500 in the death toll, which we woke up Saturday morning and heard about as being 200 is now over 600. Well, if you were such a person, think about this. You, you may be retired on Friday evening. It's the beginning of the Sabbath. Just think about this. It's the beginning of the Sabbath. And not only is it the beginning of the Sabbath, but this particular day is an important Sabbath because it's the culmination of, of eight days. You remember how some of the Old Testament feasts would begin with the Sabbath and culminate with the Sabbath. And so it is here because what you're really looking at is the culmination of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And the final, we would say Sunday, but to the Jews it's the Sabbath, the final Sabbath day in this. So you retire that evening, it's the beginning of the Sabbath, you get up the next day or you think you're going to get up the next day and perhaps you're thinking about worship or maybe you're not a worshiper and you're thinking about other things and instead, if you wake up the next morning, you wake up to something that's totally different, totally changed, your plans are all shot, and all because when you went to bed the night before you thought it would be one way but life is filled with uncertainty and you had no idea that this intricate plan, which has been in the works for some time, would be unleashed and would affect you in this way. And the scripture can be rather blatant and bold in warning us about the very thing I'm talking about tonight when, for example, the writer to the Proverbs says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Or you think about James who rebukes people who would in his thinking, boast by saying, go to now. And the whole idea is we're going to go into this city or that city and buy and sell and get gain. And James says, what's your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little while and passes away. And you ought to really be saying, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. And I don't think you have to be woodenly literal about it, but it's kind of important that we learn to use that phraseology and certainly have that attitude in our ways of speaking because truthfully you don't know that you're going to do what you think you're going to do right now tomorrow. And that's just the way life is. That of course draws me to something that I've noticed for years and you've noticed it too. It doesn't take scholarship to figure this out. 
It just takes reading of the Bible to figure out, you know, the Bible is very different than the picture I've just presented for you. The Bible is a book that's filled with certainties. It's a veritable north star by which you can sort of order, not sort of, you can order the events of your life. Of course, that's way too broad of a scope to talk about tonight, so I'd like to narrow it a little bit. And I'd like to point out to you that, you know, it's very interesting when you read Paul's epistles, and I'm really narrowing the scope now because we could talk about John. This is true of John, but the, I want to call your attention to Paul's epistles. All right, so if you were to sit down and read Paul's epistles, here's something that you might notice if you were looking for it. And what you would notice is that the statement, I know, K-N-O-W, I know, or we know, or you know, ye know, in the old King James English, it occurs somewhat frequently considering, in fact, you'll find one of those phrases at least 16 times in Paul's letters. If you were to broaden a little bit and consider a synonym for know, and consider the word persuaded, which is in one of our text verses tonight, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded, or it's translated here for us, convinced, and am persuaded. So if you were to broaden just a little bit to include times when Paul says something like that, you'd get three more, which now I have almost 20 times that Paul says, here's something that you can go to the bank on. And you know, that brings a certain security to life. We are creatures who are created really that way. We long after security. And to be able to know things from the Bible with absolute certainty instills a certain direction, confidence, and impressiveness to life that otherwise is simply replaced by human arrogance, which is what we see so often out in the world. So what I've done is I've organized these and I've taken the liberty of calling them Paul uncertainties. Things that Paul obviously is very certain about and by extension wants his readers to know I'm so certain of it that the Lord inspired that I write to you and that you may be absolutely convinced of these things as well. Paul uncertainties and I've organized them in such a way that I have about six or seven of them, don't worry. We're not going to talk about all of them tonight. If the Lord gives me other opportunities, I'll try to flesh some of this out for you. But I want to talk to you tonight probably about one that's the best place that I could imagine to begin, and that is the gospel. Do you know that you can be absolutely certain about the gospel? Did you ever think what that really means, that you can be certain about the gospel? All right, think about it this way. You decide that you're going to take a religious survey, so you go into a certain subdivision and you knock on doors. You have to be sort of bold to do that anymore. But you knock on the door and somebody comes to the door and you say, hello, I'm so-and-so and I'm taking a religious survey. And I had a few questions I wanted to ask you. Be willing to give me a couple minutes of your time. And the person's gracious enough. They say, sure. And so you begin to ask questions. And you start talking about eternal life, heaven, and right away you detect that there's a great deal of uncertainty there. If you ask a question similar to this, I got hit with this in the early days. I've used it many times since. But it's a question that runs something like this. Do you know, no, 
K-N-O-W. Do you know if you died today that you would go to heaven? I got hit with that, and I didn't really know what to answer, and so I did like fighters do when they get hit, and it really hurts. And they don't want their point opponent to know that they got hit, and it hurts, and so they cover. That's what I did. That's just a polite way of saying I wasn't honest. But if you did that, you would find all kinds of answers. And they would basically come into about mm, a few categories. But a lot of people would say, well, I don't know. Other people would say, can you really know? But folks, I, I want to remind you something tonight that's not new to you. This is the blessing, the whole thing we're going to develop and talk about a little bit here in the message tonight. That is this. Did you know that what the Bible outlines in the gospel and what we talk about in terms of salvation could well be described as a no-so salvation? And it doesn't have anything to do with being smart or arrogant. It simply has to do with the fact that God makes certain bold declarative statements through his servants, of whom we're looking at Paul tonight, about the clarity of the gospel, and of course, many, many other things. So that we have a notice of salvation. You know, when I was just starting out in college, and I went to Bob Jones University, and so I got there and was a ministerial student, and I, I found out something that I, I didn't really realize. I, I heard about extension, and that you should go on extension, and you were expected to go on extension. A lot of people here, I'm sure, can identify with that. Well, I, this sounded like a good idea to me. But I was a freshman and didn't know too much, and so one of the things that I didn't know was I didn't really know what kind of extension I'd be interested in. And I found out there were all kinds of extensions. And so one of the things I decided, well, that sounds interesting, I'll try that. And so I went down to Columbia, and there was a servicemen center there. I don't know if it's still there or not. But it was called No-So Servicemen Center. How do you like that for a name? And of course, what that's based on is the fact that the Bible tells us that we can know. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know. Now see, I cheated. That's John. That ye may know, K-N-O-W, that you have eternal life. We have a no-so salvation. So what we're talking about tonight is gospel certainty. We can be certain about the gospel. And I want to make three points to you about this tonight. First of all, there is a need for gospel confidence. And all of this is being developed around these statements, okay, that I told you about earlier that Paul makes. So do you see it in verse number 18 of Romans chapter 7? What does he say here? He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but not the ability to carry it out. Just ponder that for a moment. Now, years ago when I learned this verse, and I couldn't tell you how many times I've quoted this verse to myself, simply because to me it makes a great way to start off in prayer when I'm thinking in terms of confession. I couldn't tell you how many times I've told God, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. I can see myself right now, out on my morning walk, into my prayers, and it's one of the first things that I would say to God. 
It's a great tone setter. You don't come into God's presence arrogantly with a statement like that. And when you really sit down to think about it, Paul makes two statements there in that verse. He establishes two things with utter and absolute biblical certainty. First of all, he actually addresses a broader question in philosophy and a question that many people have, and that is, what is man's essential nature? And Paul says, man is not naturally good. Did you know that? That's bad news. That's really bad news, because would you agree that even if you just sort of had a casual knowledge and acquaintance with spiritual things, and somebody were to say, do you think you need to be good to go to heaven? You'd say, oh yeah, good, bad people don't go to heaven. Good people go to heaven. But man is not naturally good. This is what Paul is saying. I know that in me, in my flesh, that is in my, in my unconverted state, as well as in the fallen nature that I still possess, I don't have anything that merits God's favor. I don't have anything that would commend me to God. That's not to say that people don't do nice things. It's not to say that people don't do what we would call good things. It's simply to say that there is no merit which would make us acceptable in God's presence. We're not that way at all. In fact, the, quite the opposite is true. That man is inherently evil, fallen, sinful. And this is what Paul is saying, but he says something else. The bad news only gets worse. Not only are we not good enough to go to heaven, but he says there's nothing you can do about that in and of yourself. He says the willing is present, the doing, no. I love how you, when you look at this in the original language, it's so blunt. The word no is right at the end of the sentence. And it's like, he says, the willing is there, the doing, no. It's not to say that on a good day we don't do a few things right. It is to say that on pretty much every day we do a bunch that isn't. To remedy this condition, to figure out a way to change ourselves, to make ourselves good enough to be in God's presence, you know what, beloved? It just isn't there and it isn't going to happen. This is not good news. But it's something you can be absolutely certain about on the authority of the Bible. Now here's something that's kind of interesting. When you realize this context, we didn't read this because you just can't read everything. But Paul is speaking autobiographically in this chapter. I think most of us would agree with this. And so the question arises, how did Paul come to this understanding? How did you, if you know that? If you know that you're not good, if you know that you're a sinner, and you really accept that in your heart, and it really means something to you, in terms of transformative truth, not just an intellectual fact. How did you come to that? And Paul tells us in his own particular case, and it's not everybody's experience works the same way, but there are certain elements that are the same. So watch this. I'm going to give you three things to think about. See, because this came very, this was really a difficult thing for Paul. And it's, it's difficult to get Paul to tell you much about himself. <laughs> think about that for a moment. Just Paul just doesn't talk about himself that much, which is probably a good sign. That's several places in the New Testament he gives his testimony, so you can learn things that way. Occasionally in his epistles, he drops little notes, little hints, little things that you can say, see. So I, I want to read you one of those that I don't have a slide for you on tonight, but this comes from the book of Philippians. And, you know, the thing of it is, Paul was a rising star within Judaism. Ever thought about that? I mean, when he was talking to the Roman centurion, he said, you know, I, I'm 
or to the chief captain, he said, you know, I, I'm from Tarsus, no mean city. But he said, I was brought up here in this city, Jerusalem, at the feet of Gamaliel. Do you, do you realize the statement he just made? He grew up in Jerusalem. He grew up where it doesn't get any better than that in terms of rabbinic training. And he grew up being taught at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the leading, if not one of the leading, if not the leading, rabbis or teachers of his day. That's Paul's pedigree. That's his credentials. That's him in Judaism. So when you come to Philippians, and he gives this little note about his background, he starts off in verse number 4. And he says, if anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I'm more. And he's not being boastful, he's just telling the truth. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And he's not boasting and he's not making things up. He's simply telling the truth. He had this external righteousness and he thought, and here's exactly what I would have said if you'd asked me this. I think I'm okay. He thought he was okay. How many people here tonight, don't raise your hand, but how many people here tonight remember a time when you thought you were okay? And what shattered that? What changed your way of thinking? What changed your way of thinking so dramatically that you were drawn to the cross, whereas before you really didn't want anything to do with it. Well, there's three things. First of all, it starts with conviction. So in verse number 7, watch it unfold of chapter 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. There it is. What, what forms the basis of conviction? The Word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. That particular, of all commandments, can you imagine? Of all the commandments, that slew Paul. I mean, that's like it cut down a great sequoia. Thou shalt not covet. Of course, you can covet a lot of things. The, the Old Testament talks about your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife. You can covet a lot of things. Essentially, it boils down to lust. It's the desire to have something that's not in your best interest or doesn't belong to you. And he goes on and he says in verse 8, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I never knew how bad I was until I got a hold of this commandment. And the Spirit of God used it in my heart. He said, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. He didn't realize what his spiritual condition was. He thought he was okay. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proves to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived it and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's where it starts. And then it leads to realization. What is that realization? What's well, another one of, Paul and, of the Paul uncertainties? I'm just organizing it under this. It's verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual. We know the problem isn't the law. 
The law simply articulates God's righteousness. The law simply reveals to us that we don't meet that standard. The problem is the law does a great job of that, doesn't do a very good job of giving us any ability to change that in and of ourselves or just through what the law can offer. It offers the revelation but not the impetus or the power. And then Paul goes on to talk about how this realization led him to theology. This is where you get your Bible convictions. You get them from the Bible. And how do you arrive at that? Well, you arrive at that when you, your heart is taught things from the Bible. And when Paul's heart was taught things from the Bible, he was led by the Holy Spirit and used by God to articulate that in his letters. So when you go back earlier in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 12, he says, there is none good, no, not one. Where did he get that? He got that because it's in the Bible and the Spirit of God revealed that to him. There's another Paul uncertainty in Romans chapter 3 when he starts talking about the law. He hasn't just now started in chapter 7 talking about the law. When he says, for we know that what things soever the law, we know. What things soever the law saith, that saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become, do you know the next word in the way the King James renders it? Guilty. Or I think ESV says under penalty. Guilty before God. That's a far cry, beloved, from reading about Philippians chapter 3, about touching the righteousness of the law, blameless. Why is all this important? Well, I can tell you why all this is important, because you see, when this realization dawns on us, on us it makes gospel confidence very precious. When you get a hold of this truth, when it really sinks down into your heart, when you realize you're lost and undone, that you don't have any good thing by which you can commend yourself to God, and moreover, you not only do not have that, but you can't change that in and of yourself. And then the gospel comes along, and the gospel actually, after the bad news, brings some really good news. Which brings us to the next point. There's a basis for gospel confidence. Now, we'll, we'll, if you'll join me back over in... 2 Timothy now, we'll spend the rest of our time there. And let's look at that verse that we looked at just a little bit earlier, but what I want to do with it is I want to start off with the second half of the verse first. So let's read this together because we've got to talk about something here. He says, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Well, it doesn't take you very long reading that to figure that's not what I just sang a moment ago. It's a little different take on it, isn't it? I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. Here it says what's been entrusted to me. So what's the problem? Not really a problem. But it's just simply the fact that there's a difference of interpretation here and they're both valid. And it, it gets into the vagaries of the fact that the genitive is, is ambiguous. What this really says in, in the original is, my deposit. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep my deposit. Well, who, what does that mean, my deposit? See, that's a banker's term. Something has been deposited. So is Paul talking about something that he deposited, which is the way the King James renders it, which is the way... New American Standard renders it, which is the way the NIV renders it. Or, wouldn't you know I'd get the conservative standard tonight? 
they and ESV render it this way, which is not Paul entrusting someone with something, but someone entrusting something to Paul. It, they're both legitimate interpretations. So what you have to do at this point is you sort of have to pray, you sort of have to evaluate the context, you sort of have to see, well, do I think there's a, a, a valid basis to choose one interpretation over the other? Well, in terms of the Bible, they're both true. God watches over his word. He's not going to let anything fall to the ground. We don't have to worry about that. But in the context, as Pastor Steve pointed out quite well in the beginning, you know, if you look at what he's just said, he says, I know whom I have believed. And this construction in the original language indicates that Paul, what Paul is saying is, I know in whom I have placed my faith. And so when you think about that, and then you think about what he says in chapter 2, verse 2, and he says, the things which you have, he's telling Timothy, he says, the things which you've heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He uses the same banker's term again, commit. Commit it, entrust it. Put all this together, and, and I'm not going to take a lot of time with this tonight because we can get lost in, in all of that, but I think you probably have a stronger translation in the way the, the, the traditional rendering of this is. So what is Paul saying? Well, he says, I have absolute confidence in the, in the gospel, not only in that it reveals my need before God, but it reveals the answer to that need. So I ask you, where did Christ, where did Paul get his understanding of the gospel? Look at this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, beloved, if you think about this for a moment, that's a, the precise formula of language that he uses when he's talking about the Lord's table. He says, I delivered to you what I also received, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. In other words, what Paul is saying is, as Bruce was telling us a week or so ago, I didn't go down there to Jerusalem and confer with people to learn this. I got my understanding of the gospel. I became certain of the gospel because Jesus Christ taught these things to me. He delivered these things to me. So what's the very first line? Christ died for our sins. Oh! You know, that shattered Paul. Because Paul was under the impression that Jesus was an imposter. Paul was under the impression that what he got on the cross, he got what he deserved because he was a blasphemer. And all of a sudden, he met him on the road to Damascus, and when he revealed the gospel to him, he realized that not only was he the Messiah, he was the Lamb of God, he was the antitype of every sacrifice in the Old Testament. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was dying on the cross because he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And he came to realize, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him. That's what was going on on the cross. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's really good news. It's really good news if the certainty of the gospel, first of all, establishes your need and you realize you're a lost and undone sinner, that you're hell-bound hell and hell-bent and there's nothing you can do about that in and of yourself, but 
someone did something for you, and not just anyone. The glorious Son of God died on Calvary's cross for our sins, in our place. And this is what Paul's saying. He said, you know, I have absolute confidence that the faith I placed in him, what I have committed to him, if you have in tomorrow's mail, now don't count on this, but if you have in tomorrow's mail a check for $1,000, I'll up the ante. Let's make it five. You probably won't cash that and put it under your pillow. You might, but probably most of us want a little more assurance with that kind of money. So if you don't have a great big old safe in your house, you're probably going to take that check down to the bank because you have some degree of confidence that if you deposit that money there, it will be secure. This is what Paul is saying. He says, I have absolute confidence. I, what I have committed to him for safekeeping is secure against that day. But see, it's not just Paul. And here's the beautiful thing, beloved. The gospel doesn't just assure us that Christ died for our sins. It assures us that when we do what Paul is talking about here, we put our faith and trust in him, we have forgiveness. How about a verse like this? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You want to talk about gospel certainty? You want to talk about something that's really precious tonight? It's first of all to come under conviction and realize you're lost and undone. That's a very uncomfortable feeling to have. Do you remember that when that first happened to you? I really remember that, and it was uncomfortable. To realize I wasn't okay. To realize I wasn't good enough. To realize that the Apostles' Creed and membership class and whatever else I had done and quoting John 3.16 up into that point, <laughs> that wasn't going to cut it. The fact that I was born in America and knew about church and knew about Jesus and all, that wasn't going to cut it. It's a good start. No, I, I had never had a time in my life when I personally called on Christ to be my personal Savior. It was all just something I felt or something I thought or something that I intellectually accepted. And I never had a personal relationship with Christ. And when God broke into my consciousness and revealed this to me that I was not okay. And then this becomes a very beautiful truth. Christ died for our sins and that if I would call upon the name of the Lord in saving faith, I could be saved. That's gospel certainty. And let me talk for just a moment about the last thing. See, there's something that this results in. And this is really, this is really what Paul wants to get at Timothy about. This is really kind of the, the, the tip of the spear. He talks about a lot of theology. He talks about a lot of truth. But what he really wants to do is use the points that we've been talking about, particularly some of the points in this context, to drive home to Timothy. You know, there's really no need to be timid, Timothy. There's really no need for you to be ashamed of the gospel. See, he's talking about this already back in verse number 7 when he says, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Well, did you know that that word fear is not the standard word for fear? It's kind of an unusual word that actually would not be wrongly rendered cowardice. And what he's saying to him is, Timothy, I understand this. Everybody has a little bit of this. But you have no need to be ashamed. You have no need to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Or no need to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, verse 8, nor of me, his prisoner. 
And why is that? Because when you start looking at this gospel that Paul preached, he says in verse number 9, "...who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began." Now just stop and think about that for a moment. That's the rub right there. Do you ever wonder why witnessing carries with it a little bit of that stigma? Do you ever wonder why people aren't just open-armed when you come to their door or when you talk to them about the Lord or offer them a gospel tract? There's always just a little bit of that resistance there. Do you ever wonder why that was? Well, among other reasons, the main reason from the Bible is because the gospel just isn't palatable to you until you become convinced of what it says in Romans 7, 18. Until you realize you're a sinner, that you're lost and undone, there's nothing you can do to remedy that, and you're in danger if you die in that condition of being separated from God for all eternity. When that strikes home, then you get a little bit like I used to be. Uh, I'm sure Matt will identify with this. There, you know, just Sometimes it's just not fun to go to the doctor. Let me change that, the dentist. But if you think about it, when you really become convinced that you're sick, or if you get tooth pain, I'm not talking about everyday toothache. I'm talking about real, I mean, I never realized you could hurt so bad, is certain kind of tooth pain. But when that happens, you can't get down there fast enough. You're calling on the phone and badgering them for an appointment. I never will forget I had a, an ear situation one time, and I had gone to my doctor, and he said, well, He's fumbling around and he said, yeah, I just don't feel comfortable with this. I don't want to try to clean this and do all this stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, Doc, I hurt really bad. But if you're not comfortable with it, I'm not either. I Really, I mean, he's got this tool in his hand. I'm thinking, I, that's fine. He said, let's, and he called the guy's name. He said, let's go down, the, let's get on office here. We're going to call over here to so-and-so. I knew the name. And he said, let's get you in there. So I go down there and they gave me an appointment for two months. I could hear this. The secretary was talking to him on the phone. I heard him as a doctor himself. I can give you an appointment in two weeks. I said, tell him it hurts. And I heard him say back through the phone, I know it hurts. And I thought, well, he's got a great bedside manner. He didn't give me any appointment or not. I had to get in with a guy over in a neighboring town 45 minutes away. I couldn't get over there fast enough because that thing hurts so bad. I mean, there's something that becomes awfully precious about this. And see, it, it comes to another confidence, and the confidence is this. See, the afflictions, what Paul is trying to say is, the afflictions of the gospel, they come because it rubs wrong. They come because people don't like to be told they can't earn their way to heaven. It, it comes because people don't like to hear they're not good enough. That's where the rub comes. You start talking about the fact that, no, that's not the gospel. What the gospel is is something that was determined in all eternity, that this was the purpose of God to save people through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's God's sovereign grace and nothing else. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't merit it. It comes exclusively and only to someone through God's grace. I tell you something, when you get convicted about the need for gospel confidence and then somebody hits you with this, it's really sweet. And what Paul is trying to say to Timothy is, you know, something that was determined in eternity past, the certainties and the truths of the gospel, doesn't matter what people think of you. Doesn't matter how they react to you when you knock on their door. Doesn't matter if they don't like you when you give them a gospel tract. It doesn't really matter because nothing anyone in this world can do can change 
the certainty of the gospel. And that's what he's trying to tell Timothy. You don't have to be ashamed. But you know something, folks? Every one of us has a bout of it every so often, don't we? I wish I didn't have to stand here to tell you tonight. I wish I could stand here and tell you, you know, every time an opportunity presents itself for the gospel, I'm just as bold as a lion. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes we're a little bit like Peter. You remember about Peter? You think about kind of a strange mix of curiosity and fascination that impelled Peter to want to follow Jesus that night out of the garden. And so as they started down into the Kidron Valley, out of the Garden of Gethsemane, it wasn't hard to follow because up ahead, even though Peter followed afar off, up ahead you could see those torches, that ugly crowd of people that came for Jesus that night. And then you proceed northward through the Kidron Valley until you come to the steps that lead up to the palace of the high priest. You can see them today. They've been excavated. And you climb those steps, and when they got there, John, who was ahead, went in. John tells us he was acquainted with the, with the high priest's family. They let him right in, no problem. They stopped Peter at the gate. And the maid said to Peter, you're, you're not one of his followers, are you? Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no. All right, he got in. It's not very long before he finds himself in that courtyard, and it's cold that night. And he's gathered around the fire with the soldiers to warm himself. And another servant girl comes up to him and she said, you're not one of his followers, are you? Oh, no, 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 uh-uh. But a little while later, another one came up. It just so happens that she was a relative of Malchus. Who was Malchus? The guy that got his ear cut off by Peter in the garden. And she said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? And the phraseology of the Greek changes here at this point where it expects a positive answer. His goose is cooked. She's got him. She said, didn't I see you in the garden? That's when he began to swear. That's when he began to say, I don't know him. And immediately the cock crew the second time. A 10-year-old boy by the name of Joseph Grigg. He was born around 1720 and ultimately became a Presbyterian minister in London. He wrote a piece of poetry, a little rough in some places, but understandable for someone reputedly only 10 years old. But the thoughts in it are amazing, and it has endured to this day, has been set to music, I just want you to think about it with me for a moment. Jesus, and shall it ever be a mortal man ashamed of thee? Ashamed of thee whom angels praise, whose glory shine through endless days? Ashamed of Jesus? Sooner far late evening blush to own a star. He sheds the beams of light divine o'er this benighted soul of mine. Ashamed of Jesus? Just as soon let midnight be ashamed of noon. Tis midnight, 
with my soul till he, bright morning star bids darkness flee. Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend on whom my hopes of heaven depend? No. When I blush, be this my shame, that I no more revere his name. Ashamed of Jesus? Yes. I may when I've no guilt to wash away, no tear to wipe, no joy to crave, no fear to quell, no soul to save. Till then, nor is this boasting vain, till then I boast a Savior slain. And oh, may this my portion be that Christ is not ashamed of me. When Joseph Grigg wrote that as a 10-year-old boy, the title he gave it are the last three words you're looking at right now. Ashamed of me? And beloved, this is where gospel confidence comes in. This is where when we know these things in our hearts and are assured of them and convinced of them because they belong to the certainties of Scripture, that together with those statements and along with the power of the Holy Spirit, we gain the courage, the spirit who is not the spirit of fear but of power of love and of a sound mind, we gain the power not to be ashamed of Jesus. Our Father, would you help us here tonight because we confess, in spite of being around these grand truths for many years, there are still times when we don't always do right. Truth be known, Lord, we didn't want to trust him when we first heard because we were worried about what people would think. And even now, Sometimes that still plagues us. We worry about what people will think. Forgive us for not giving sway to the glorious power of the truth. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And for not realizing that the spirit who lives within us is not the spirit of cowardice, but is the spirit of power of love and of a sound mind. Give us a greater boldness and confidence as we enter this week to speak when you give us opportunity to speak for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.